I'm Devin Gallagher, and you're listening to Media on the Radio. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from producers and creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. This series of conversations focuses on how to break into the media field as well we explore the media landscape. All right, can you hear me? I can hear you. Today we're talking to Ryan Muldowney. You can call me a reality TV producer if you want. He's based out of Los Angeles, California, and he mostly works in reality TV. I've worked on some good shows. I've worked on some really bad shows. Let me just say this. No matter how dumb a show is, there are always a group of very smart people behind it putting together these silly, ridiculous jokes that you see, putting together these dumb situations that are poorly acted. Everybody that's doing it, for the most part, is pretty smart. Ryan and I have known each other for a long time. We first met on a show called Gettin' Later, which was a student-run comedy talk show that aired on campus television at Slipper Rock University. Ryan and I get to reminisce about what were the ingredients that made a great sketch for Gettin' Later. The simpler the better, because it's not like we were SNL writers. We were just a bunch of goofballs in college making comedy shows. Those simple things that people can just look at for 20 seconds and just laugh at. It kind of reminds me of The Tonight Show now, Jimmy Fallon's doing. Not mm-hmm. that we were like it's Jimmy Fallon or anything. We probably but. informed a lot of what happened there. Ryan also shares his ideas of how to break into the field of television. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. If you live in the Washington, D.C. metro area and you want to get involved in media production, check out arlingtonmedia.org. There are countless ways to get involved, like volunteering on programs, taking classes, and producing your own media projects. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. So what I'm going to do is I'll edit together a brief intro, do like a, um, you know, Ryan Muldowney is a, is a media professional in Los Angeles, California. Okay. Like an NPR style thing. And then it'll just come into us at some point. You can call me a reality TV producer if you want. You're going to be the second reality TV producer that I have. Really? Yeah. Who's the other it. one? Kate Grinling. She's, uh, she oh, actually put right. out a documentary as well. You should look her up, actually. Okay. I'll connect you guys. She's out in L.A. Sounds like she works in the field then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm in post, so we're on the other side of the fence. Yeah. We Monday, we Monday morning quarterback. Yeah, no, she did bring that up. Yeah. I was like, why didn't you get that shot? Well. <laughs> They don't ask why, like, at least whenever I'm doing it. It's not why didn't you get that shot. It's just that we need the shot and it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's just we're a, both on the same team. It's like the offense and the defense in football. You're not playing the game at the same time, but you're all part of the same team, and the show is a success or not based on both units. Right. I get you. <laughs> and I know that they're out there for like 12 hours a day and you're not going to get everything. And it's easy to look at a screen and be like, oh, they didn't get this shot. But that's what we're for. We're we're like the fail safe to make right. sure that the story can be told. So it, creates a, so it creates a contentious relationship then? Not always. It depends on the people and how the, they look at things. If you look at it from a positive perspective, like they were both on the same team. And you just realize, okay, they need that shot to tell the story that they're telling. But as I know, there's there's shots that you can definitely go back and get, and then there's definitely shots that you can't get. Oh, yeah. Well, then, if, if you can't go back and get it, I mean, it depends on the situation. Yeah, or maybe they say, no, we got that shot. It's from this day. Oh, well, I didn't see this day. I All didn't right. see that part. And you go and you find the shot. Like, it's, every circumstance is different. What do you remember about the 
Slip Rock University's communications department. What what's the first thought that comes back to your into your mind about that? Uh, they had a laissez-faire approach to teaching. How how do you mean? Uh, well, the actual classes they didn't, but as far as the TV station and learning stuff for television, uh, they didn't really have anything in place for that. At the end of our freshman year, we were just messing around with a VHS camcorder on our dorm room floor, and then a one friend of ours, Ben, said to, oh, we should maybe we should try to use the TV studio, and then they basically threw the keys at him and said, here you go, kid. <laughs> and then we all just went down there and started goofing around and trying to make a television show and then we we made like one episode over a semester most of the time we were just down there goofing off but what i remember though it a little bit organized by the time i got in there it must have been second semester sophomore year for me because yeah yeah by the time you got there we started having our stuff together we figured out how we can shoot an episode then we had lanny for terry come on as a guest who is a local Oh yeah, Pittsburgh Sorry. sports <laughs> commentator. He was the the uh, the voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates for thirty years. Right. I don't know what he's doing now. Hi, Lanny. Hope you're listening. I told this story already on the podcast, but I remember I was up late Friday night or Saturday night watching, you know, campus television. I figured I'd just turn it on, and I saw. Man, you're a real party animal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I saw the this video of a ro- road rules contestant that had visited campus to like talk about his experience, I guess. And uh-huh. the, the interview was slowed down really slow, and then there was music put on instead of the interview audio. And I was like, "Wait, what is this? Wait!" And I, I, I was like, "I have to be a part of this." <laughs> and just from just from watching, literally just from watching about two two and a half minutes of the video, I had emailed you or whoever was like on the information at gettinglater.com email. Yeah. And I was like, I, can I can I come down to the studio? Can I help? What, what do you need? Anything? <laughs> do you remember that? I do remember that, that. I remember that interview. I did the interview and that was all a mistake. Like that, not you emailing, but the fact that the, the interview was just played over the the vinyls I touched myself I remember that that was the song <laughs> so I remember the uh, Dan Setzler from he was one of the road rule seasons the early seasons uh, he came to campus and I was so excited because I loved that show when I was a kid and I got to interview him and I like wore my nice polo shirt that I buttoned all the way to the top for some reason so I looked like a real doofus <laughs> and then we gave it to uh, the, gave the footage to the very capable hands of Sam our editor. <laughs> who who then somehow deleted 95% of the footage after he digitized it and taped over the tape. So he had no record of it except for this one clip. And then he was like, oh, no, i got to make something of this. So he just put the uh, that song, I Touched Myself, over it and made it look like I was like super excited to interview this guy. <laughs> and then that's what you saw. So it all worked out. It was better off. You might not have come down if you didn't see that. It was just a straight, straight up interview. We would have maybe never met. Yeah, that's true. So what's funny? What's funny is, and I brought, I brought Mike Riley, my one of my best friends from high school, that we went to school together. And I was like, you got to come down. We got to, we got to just check this out. And then it was great having you guys come on because when we first said we're doing a TV studio, we're opening the TV studio. Like everybody, come down with their ideas. We had like thirty people come to this first meeting. And me and Ben were up at the front talking, 
uh, the other, our friend Ben, who uh, ran the TV station at the time, we were talking about, like, yeah, you guys, like, here's all this stuff, and we have, you know, you guys can do your own shows, you can come and help us with our show, and, like, after that first meeting, the second meeting, there's, like, 15 people that showed up, like, what happened to all these people? And then soon enough, they were all, like, they had all these ideas, but then when it came time to actually do something about them, nobody ever executed anything, so it was just us again. So, like, I guess we're the only ones that have interest in this, and then you guys came around, like, oh, there's more people that actually want to do something. Yeah, so I would fun. say there was, there was like at one point there was like a core of eight or nine people that were contributing pretty much yeah. at least 10 to 20 hours a week to create this program. I know. It's, it was nuts that we did that and we all found each other. I know. And there were some other people that would come and do a little bit too. But uh, yeah, it ended up being just like, like you said, eight or nine people that were really putting a lot of effort into it. Given the fact that it was a state school and it was, it was a good journalism degree, but the television program was not developed yet. And what was yeah. nice about it is, you know, we had each other to kind of build it ourselves in a sense. And there was a lot of self-learning. That's one way of putting it self-learning or hands-off teaching. <laughs> <laughs> and which was good. You're right. I think it did help us in the long run. If we would have had like a teacher there meddling with everything we were doing, it wouldn't have helped us, I think. I think we kind of made our own way and figured out how to do things. And it, it did help that we had each other. And even online and all having television on the Internet, that didn't really exist for another three years after that regularly. Then everybody started doing it. We were putting clips and shows online, right? On the yeah, website. Yeah, the beginning. That was one of the things I was like, we got to put our show on the internet because nobody's going to watch campus television because it's just on closed circuit television. I was like, let's just put everything online. We had these, it wasn't very high quality, but we had everything online. I think more people watched it on the internet just because I remember just spamming everybody with instant message links saying, check out our new episode every week. I'm sure people were so sick of me. What was the recipe for like a good short skit, like a three or five minute skit that would get a lot of attention on campus. I don't even remember what got a lot of attention. What I remember is we used to develop these five to seven page long scripts with actors and all these different setups and costume and, you know, what we thought was funny, irreverent or or absurdist comedy. You know, we wouldn't get too many hits or too many views or too much reaction. But then we would stick you without your shirt on in the studio singing a ballad. Yeah. Or you and Mike just doing funny dancing and that would go like gangbusters that's true yeah as long as it, there wasn't a lot of thought involved people liked it it's kind of yeah i guess that's right just i mean we, the simpler the better because it's not like we were snl writers we were just a bunch of goofballs in college making comedy shows those simple things that people can just look at for 20 seconds and just laugh at it kind of reminds me of the tonight show now jimmy fallon's doing not mm -hmm. that we were like the jimmy fallon or anything we probably but. informed a lot of what happened there Though. Oh, I'm sure we were a big influence. <laughs> but, you know, he's doing a lot. He's not doing anything that's super deep. He's just having people no. come on out and sing karaoke, which is stuff that we did. You know, you were trying to appeal to a bunch of drunk college kids, so what are they like? A, bunch of, a fat guy running around shirtless, so let's just, I'll just go on shirtless and run around campus. You know what else was good? That one where we set up the kissing booth. That was a good one. Yeah, that was good. That That, that was interactive. Yeah, we set up a kissing booth on campus and said $2 for a kiss, and then nobody, of course, kissed us. You got a kiss. 
<laughs> I didn't. I, I think Mike, the co-host, got a kiss, and I did not get a kiss. And I was very upset. He's still living it down. I look back on that now because I, I work in you know a TV station, and it's a public access channel, and we help facilitate other people producing programming and people come in with big ideas and you know it's it's your job to kind of help them start the process and even me as the staff producer looking at creating a program like that like a weekly some package in the field some in the studio it boggles my mind that we were able to do that. I guess we had a decent amount of time on our hands and all in the same location yeah, yeah I don't remember studying that super hard but the thing was the fact that we were there editing this stupid thing like a Knight Rider parody on a Friday night that says right there like oh I have interest in this and this is maybe something I should pursue as a career because right. if I'm there at that time we're spending hours on something like this it seems like nonsense and the actual material was nonsense but the greater theme is that you have an interest in this particular industry and then maybe you should pursue that interest. So was there a, even in college was there an idea or a mind's eye of what what was your dream job? I would say my dream job probably would have been late night talk show writing staff at that point in my life and I think I would have taken any job I knew I wanted to move to Los Angeles I think around my third year of college and I think I just would have taken any job that would have gotten my foot in the door and just went from there I didn't have like a super grand plan you and I started talking about moving to LA together yeah right out of college and we would talk about it and we I remember we'd instant message late at night and be like yeah and then we can you know, we can get a job temporarily out there. We can live out there, get a place together. The whole time that we were developing this plan, I was kind of in the back of my mind, like, I don't know if I'm going to like it out there. Yeah, I didn't know either. I was like, eh, maybe you hate it, but if you hate it, you could always move home. I had even bought like an L.A. Dodgers hat. I was wearing it around like... I remember kinda, that, yeah. Kind of like this is a symbol of where I'm going. You had secured a production assistant job with a, a, a contact that you had met through getting later. Yeah, okay. I uh, got I got my first job because this guy Mikey Glazer, he was a casting producer at Fear Factor. Somehow came across our website, emailed emailed it, and I was running the website, so I started talking to him. And then he was like, "Send me a tape of your stuff." So I sent him a couple tapes of our show. He's like, "This is cool. Stay in touch." So I mean, I stayed in touch with him, mm. and I was like, "Oh, I'm interested in being a PA." And uh, this is like over the course of a couple of years. You know, I would send him an email every now and then, and then he was eventually he emailed me one day and said. Hey, I'm I'm staffing up a television show. It's the Telemundo version of Deal or No Deal called Vas o No Vas, and uh, we're doing the casting for it. And if you're interested, you have a job. And then, I had scored a job working in the this educational conference where they do educational experiences for youth in different fields. And one was in LA. It was a cool experience because they put you up in UCLA and they paid you pretty well. You didn't have a lot of time off, but you got enough time to kind of spend in LA, but it was also a good vehicle to get set up and get established. And I thought, yeah. this is my chance. What if I just drive out there, work this job for a couple months, and then try and find a job in, in film or television? So I packed up yeah. my car. I got my cousin to ride out with me. And it reached a point where at the end of my time, I was like, I can't do this. I can't stay. Looking back, I realized that I just wasn't maybe mature enough or ready to kind of stay your ability to be committed to that this is what I want to do I don't think was very typical <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> and, and it worked out for me like you know I, I moved back and I eventually moved down to Washington DC and got really into what I'm doing down here can you talk about your career in television and and what it's been like the last five ten years I've worked on some 
good shows. I've worked on some really bad shows. I've worked on everything in between. <laughs> Started out working as a PA on the Telemundo version of Deal or No Deal, Boss and No Boss. After that, I, I worked as a production assistant for a while at, at E! Entertainment. Then after that, I, I've worked briefly for Fox Animation, American Dad. And then the writer's strike happened, and I got laid off. So I was affected by the writer's strike, even though I wasn't a writer. It was not the best year for me professionally or financially. Things picked up after that eventually, and then I got into working on just re- reality shows in post-production. And then from there, I moved up and became a story producer, and that's what I'm doing now. There's so many different kinds of reality shows. There are docu-soaps, build shows, there are pawn shop shows. There's, let me just say this, no matter how dumb a show is, there are always a group of very smart people behind it putting together these silly, ridiculous jokes that you see, putting together these dumb situations that are poorly acted. Everybody that's doing it, for the most part, is pretty smart. Not every show can be the West Wing. It's like any other genre of television. There's good reality shows and there are bad reality shows. The shift that I see, you can correct me if I'm wrong because you know more than I do, it started off, they figured out a formula that they can they can make shows cheaper if you didn't have to, you know, hire actors and writers and different things. And then yeah. as, as the thing progressed, they figured out that you can even make it cheaper if you just write the show and write the responses of, of the people <laughs> that are the reality show contestants exactly. or yeah. actors. Yeah, the cast, whatever. If it's a competition show competition shows i don't think they they don't script those out i mean they script no. out challenges and right. stuff but just right if you watch a show on like just a docu soap you know those are written or they'll say produced the, the term is produced not written but that's basically the same thing as written you give an outline depending on the show like this should happen this this and this happens now they don't script out word for word what happens there's a point there's like this there's a outline of a scene and the the cast goes and executes that outline. You're not writing it, so you don't have to pay writers' guild fees. Reality shows are like the Wild West, so there's no union. It, it's cheaper and they make more money. What I find is interesting about how the shift has happened, it has kind of come full circle to the point where you are you have this talent, we'll say, or the cast that are being fed kind of storylines and, and and situations. It's almost like improv. Maybe there's biography information that's accurate or, or truthful, but everything else that's kind of happening is, is fabricated. But what I find is some of those shows are really hilarious. When you take it to the nth degree, like the tow truck shows where they show up, the repo shows where they oh, show up to, to pick up the car, and it's these outlandish stories of, you know, one was like a – they were picking up a hearse to repo a hearse and then the, the casket fell out and the, the body fell out of the casket. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's obvious to, to anyone that's had a media literacy course that this is not real. But at the same time, to me, it's entertaining. It's hilarious. I watched it and, and I found it, I found it hilarious, like a guilty pleasure. I found it hilarious. Yeah. It's like junk food television. It's funny to watch. Like if you're just, you know, around the house, not doing anything, like you flip that on, it's like, oh, whatever, I'll just watch it and it's mindless. But yeah, those things, those, if you take it that far, it is, it is funny and it's its own form of entertainment. It's like you can't consider that a reality show, although you'd be surprised at the amount of people that think those are real. Can you talk a little bit about what you think makes a successful show or how you, how you build an audience 
you know, you're in the post-production or the story development. Wh- what are you looking for in terms of ingredients that make a good show or a successful show or a popular show? Well, you have to have a good cast that knows what show they're doing. Showman now, Treehouse Masters, is really good because their main character is a guy who gets that it's a TV show. And he's doing, it's, it's as real as you can get. Like, they build treehouses every week for people. But they get that you have to have fun while doing it, and you have to show that fun, and you have to be on for the cameras. And the people that play that game, they're the ones that usually have the best television shows. And also a network that knows what it wants and doesn't interfere too much once it figures out the formula. Because a lot of times what happens is you have a show that's good at the beginning, and then the network interferes with it. So they give you all these notes to change it to make it that way. And then they see it and like, what were you guys thinking? Why would you do it that way? Do it the other way. So you change it back to the other way. And then they give you notes. So there's, a, there's always a lot of interference. <laughs> and it's such a general thing, but really it's true. Just don't get in the way. Just don't, don't fight it. Don't fight the kind of people you have in front of the camera. Don't fight the footage. And don't get in your own way. And you can have something special. Can you talk a little bit about the different crews that you've worked with and the people, not necessarily naming them, yeah, we usually have, have a, an executive producer, a showrunner, who's sometimes out in the field watching everything and making sure it happens. A lot of shows have outlines. Those outlines, at least in my experience, whenever I'm sitting down and I'm starting an episode as a story producer for an episode, I mean, I take those with a grain of salt. I think those are just to have something like a bare-bones thing, just so we, if, if, if nothing else happens out there, at least we can get this stuff because we've pre-planned, we've produced this. Mm-hmm. But if you have something better happen when you're out in the field, then you go with that. How much development goes into one episode? Like how much writing and an outline and, and doing your research on the on the individuals? I guess once you have a kind of a template, you go with that. You're asking about pre-production, like what goes on? Yeah, oh, like a, is it like six weeks, three weeks? No, pre-production is pretty much non-existent in reality these days. So it's more about logist- it's logistics. Like the first thing gets cut from the schedule. The more pre-production you have and the amount of time you have set up of run-of-the-mill reality show, we'll get information from the cast and then incorporate that into an outline for a scene or a scenario based on that because their real lives could make for interesting television. Then you don't have to make things up. But what happens a lot of the time is there's no time to get that information, so everybody's just kind of guessing at what they do. So it's kind of at sometimes like a hybrid of, of this script writing or, or fabrication versus if you had more time to develop that you could develop these these personal narratives with the characters. Yeah, you could spend more time figuring out what makes them tick instead of just guessing. Every, all the schedules keep getting tighter and tighter and tighter because there are so many more channels and there's less money to go around. Everybody tightens the belt and then the first thing they go is pre-production. And then also post-production schedules keep shrinking. Have you seen over time more creative control given to you? I know you've, you've gone from a production assistant all the way up to a story producer. Even yeah. in the story producer role, have you seen more creative control? Uh, it depends on the show. It depends on the, bo- the boss. I think I have, like, I'm the first set of eyes like, on, on the footage. What happens, most shows, they go out and shoot the footage, and then there's a story team. But usually one person is in charge of a particular episode. So I'll get, say, I get this one episode. So I start on it, and I watch all the footage, and then I, I watch the interviews if there's a show that shoots interviews. A lot of shows now will just do interviews after the fact. They'll have someone like me ask questions that get answers that we want, so like to fill in the holes in the scenes that we've already crafted. We'll write down what we want them to say, and they'll say it. 
like I said, it's all show by show. But in general, I'll be the one that watches all the footage, and then I it's, I string it out, which is just like not it's not an edit. It's like a first pass. It's like you're taking days and days of footage and condensing it down into what you think the episode should be. God, that's gotta be I'm, such hard work because I, I do a lot of editing, and just the mass of footage that you have to go through is just gotta be unbelievable. I feel like it's not hard work. It's 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 a lot of it's a lot of work. But it's time consuming. But if you if you know what makes a good story, then it's not necessarily hard. Well, I assume also that depends on the production and who's who's shooting it, because you can get into situations where people overshoot, or you know not enough, and what do you look? Where's the story in the footage? Exactly. And then you know certain shows, even you know big production shows, sometimes shoot four or five cameras. Just the time it takes to go through all those that footage just takes a small army. It does, and it's, sometimes it's just me, and I'm doing it by myself. And then basically I put in what I think works, and then I give it to an editor, and then the editor will see something that's like, oh, we need some more of this or some more of that, and then I'll go find it and get it. Or, or he'll say, I think we can use something like this. Do you know anything that would connect this scene? And I think back at something that I cut initially, and I'm like, you know what, you're right, that works. So then it's a collaborative effort. It's funny because it's almost like you're kind of the brain because you have all the information. You don't want the editor having to watch all of the footage. Exactly. You want, them, the you want them to be creative and, and kind of work on story. You're the, kind of the only person that has everything in their head. Yeah, pretty much. I, I'm like the guy that has the, the knowledge of there's a shot that, that exists or doesn't exist. And the editors, they also get paid a lot more, so they don't want to waste their time with stuff like that. The editor and myself will put together what we think is a good cut, and then our supervisor producer will watch it, or sometimes the executive producer will watch it, or they'll watch it together, and then they give notes on what they think should go in it. So then we change it for that, and it's all just a series of checks and balances. Do you get married to things? You get attached to certain cuts that you think work really well, or have you learned not, not to do that? No, I've learned not to do that. I will fight for things if I think that they're funny or they're good. And somebody, and like my boss will say, I take that out. I'm like, no, I left it in because of, because of this, this, and this. And they'll either be like, oh, okay. And that, if you really like it, keep it in. Or they'll just be like, sorry, it's not working for me. Take it out. I don't try to push back on everything because you can't. And even and if you end, were, like, even if you were I, in charge, you wouldn't be able to get everything that you wanted. Yeah, exactly. Everybody always answers to somebody. I answer to my boss, and it goes up. Even the network, like the network executive who watches these cuts and gives notes, they still got to answer to their boss. And everybody's just trying to justify themselves with notes. Like, they give notes because if they don't give notes, then why are they even there? Is the cut that I gave to the network, like, a, a ton different than, or is, it, is, like, my cut really much different than the network's version, what they want? Probably not. Right. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to put the show on the air. So whatever they want trumps what I want. What advice would you give to people that want to get into specifically television since that's what, that's what your industry is? PA jobs are the, probably the easiest jobs to get in the industry because they're cheap labor. They don't cut PAs. They'll cut from the top or the middle before they cut from the bottom. They'll have more people on the bottom. You can hire two or three production assistants for, or four production assistants for what some producers make. You just got to get that first opportunity and that's the hardest one to get once you get that it's like the ball rolling downhill you'll get more if you're good at your job and you have a good attitude and you just have to be prepared to do some grunt work and it's not going to be fun it's going to be a lot of long hours and you're going to be running around and grabbing stuff for people 
getting coffees. I mean, it's the cliched, like, getting coffee for people, but it's true. They, that's that's what you do. You go, and they say, go get, go pick up this thing from this place an hour away and bring it back, and that's what you do. But if you're good and you have a good attitude, then those people will see that, and then you won't be doing it for that long. The, more, the higher you move up, you still have to do work that it's still a job. You still have to do, not everything is all fun all the time, but you'll get to have a little more fun the more you move up and do some more creative things. What about on set in the production office or post-production office? How do you, how do you conduct yourself? Obviously, you should conduct yourself with professionalism, but what what qualities are of of people are you know what qualities are they um, producers looking for? Um, well, if you're just breaking in, they just want somebody who is not a jerk because you got to spend twelve hours a day with these people. So that's number one. You just want someone who's nice and. Like, yeah, you can be professional, but it's, like, in the field or in production offices, it's a pretty creative environment. So, you know, there's leeway to have some fun. Just know that within reason, you're still out there in a professional environment, and you're still the low person on the totem pole. So have fun. But have fun and put out your personality and let people know how you are as a person, and then they'll remember you if you have the right attitude. And hopefully they'll remember you in a positive way, and then the next time someone needs a production assistant or needs somebody else, whatever your position is, then they'll think of you if they like you. It is so hierarchical to me when I look at Hollywood yeah. and, and and it still is and, and other types of office arrangements and organizational communication structures have changed, but Hollywood and television seem very set in that hierarchical st- structure, but at the same time, it's really functional that's how you're able to churn out all of these products so quickly because everyone knows kind of their role. And that's something that you really have to learn really quickly in production and in, in video or television or film. You're starting at the bottom and you really do have to kind of accept that. Yeah, and that's kind of a good lesson just in, for life in general. You gotta, like, there's a lot of people out there who want to do it. The demand is so high for a job like that. That's why you got to have the good attitude. If you have a good attitude and you have a good mindset and you're you're good at what you do people will keep hiring you this is devin gallagher host of media on the radio and thanks for listening you can find new episodes of media on the radio visit arlingtonmedia.org